all of these experiences where people have gone to the church for healing and they've either found um, the source of their trauma or they found something that compounds their trauma. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that while spirituality excused itself from the conversation because of fear and lack of trust, also many of us have compartmentalized spirituality for the same reason, because we had a lack of trust uh, about its ability to help us as well. And I think for me, it was a long journey of beginning to realize what it looked like with new boundaries and with safer practitioners and with more helpful and compassionate and capacious religious ideologies that I could invite spirituality back to the table. And then rather than compounding my trauma, it accelerated my healing, but it had to be in conversation. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. I'm your host, Nicole Ingram. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. So today, Lindsay and I get the chance to explore a bit of a tricky topic, the intersection of spirituality and trauma. The good news is we are digging into this space with our friend and living-centered program alum, Jonathan Merritt. It will not take long for you to see that Jonathan has the unique ability to navigate challenging waters with both grace and levity. Jonathan is an award-winning writer and journalist who focuses on issues of faith and culture, and he communicates just as beautifully and clearly when he's processing ideas in real time. In this conversation, Jonathan vulnerably shares his story of healing with us and explains that while he experienced much harm inside of spiritual contexts, his healing journey has actually been accelerated by re-engaging new and healthier forms of spirituality. We discuss the integral role of community while on the path to healing and wholeness and the importance of maintaining daily practices to keep us centered while on the path. I can't wait for you to meet Jonathan and hear him wordsmith his way through this conversation as he poetically unpacks both heartbreak and healing. So please join me in welcoming Jonathan Merritt. We are back today with our friend Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan, how are you today? Oh my gosh, and so well, and it's so good to see both of your faces and to be able to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Mm, Thanks for being here. We always love talking to you because you do such a good job of putting to words things that people feel. And so I feel like every time I get to have a conversation with you, whether on a podcast or in life, I am so moved by how you articulate things and it sort of helps unlock things in me listening to you process. I think you're more of like a verbal processor than I am. Mm -hmm. Like it's all kind of tucked away. And so that's one thing I love about our friendship is just that just being with you, I unlock things that are going on inside myself. So grateful for you. Oh my gosh, look at that. I did not know I was coming to be buttered up on this podcast. I feel like I owe you money already. That's how we do it. (laughs) I will bolster what she just shared with the fact that last time she spoke with you, she came back and like regurgitated it in this really beautiful way. And I started taking notes. I started taking notes because it was so poetic. And then I called you a ballerina, verbal ballerina. And then... That's really. Okay, I'm here for that. So let's start. Let's start off on that note. <laughs> yeah, let's please. Let's do. I don't know that I have the equilibrium to be a ballerina, but thank you for for spotting the, the grace that I do have. Yes, the ideal. <laughs> I embody that ideal. ideal. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we last talked to you a couple years ago. It was right when we were launching the podcast, and you mm-hmm. were sort of fresh off of your freshish off your experience with the Living Center program. I'd love to hear kind of like what's happened in the last couple of years and where are you now? Yeah. Well, the world's fallen apart more than it had <laughs> even, <laughs> even then. Um, so that's, so that's something, um, you know, on the one hand, we've kind of moved through one of the most triggering experiences of, of all of our lives, which was a global pandemic. Um, on the other hand, other 
issues have been sort of unearthed, not just in our in our immediate context in this country, but around the world. And so there are new wars. There is new economic instability. Uh, there is new political unrest. There's greater a greater sense of division where we feel more separated from our friends and our family members. And everybody's had that experience, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, I thought I knew Uncle Bob. And now like, I don't know that I can be around him anymore. And so I think that there's been a kind of social fracturing that has happened that has, has, has left a lot of us feeling even more isolated than we already felt. From where you know I sit, that that that's been to me kind of a call to arms, not to go out and fight for things, but to fight for my own health. And so I've had to be more diligent about therapy. I've had to be more diligent, more diligent about spiritual direction, which, by the way, has been probably at least as transformative for me as therapy um, in this period. So allowing. You know, and maybe this is, is is apropos to our conversation. When we when we talked about for many many years, when we talked about trauma, when we talked about emotional pain, when we talked about mental illness, there were a few seats at the table that we all granted. You know, in the early days of this conversation, you you granted a seat to psychology because that was sort of where the pioneering of conversations about trauma happened. So psychology got a seat at the table and psychology would talk to us about the ways in which our childhood wounds, our disappointments and betrayals, disillusionment uh, around life not turning out the way we thought it would, the way that those things created fractures in our psyches, the way that those things broke our hearts. And psychology was able to sort of speak about what um, a path might look like for sewing up some of those wounds, cleaning out some of those wounds, approaching something that you might call healing. And in the last 30 years or so, 40 years, um, we all sort of agreed to grant a seat at the table to medicine. And we started to sort of destigmatize mood stabilizers, antidepressants, et cetera. And so now, you know, somebody goes online and admits they take Lexapro and it's like there's a collective yawn, right? It's, we've all, we've all heard that trope. And, and when people, when people talk about destigmatizing antidepressants, it sounds like passe. It's like, where's the stigma? We all sort of realize that sometimes the depth of those fissures in our lives from the trauma uh, need help pulling themselves together. And talk therapy or even the kinds of modalities that uh, you encounter at a place like OnSite that are more advanced. So uh, psychodrama, role play, uh, somatic exercises, for example, to express um, your grief or or your rage. Those things are good and necessary, and also we sometimes need support from medicine. And so we've been sort of locked in a conversation about trauma for some time where we've, where we've been having a conversation with these two parties, with psychology and medicine. And I think the thing that I've come to realize in spiritual direction has been a part of this journey is that spirituality deserves a seat at the table too. And that there is a well of wisdom that spirituality can offer. There are things that it can can contribute to this conversation that are outside the scope of psychology and outside the scope of medicine. And so you bring bringing a spirituality into the conversation about my own healing journey has been something that I think has really revolutionized the journey itself. It's really good. You know, and very thought-provoking. And I feel like some people like start with spirituality as like the only tenet mm-hmm. of of the, their whole self and all their wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then as they sort of begin to embrace more methods of finding healing and wellness, that 
they sort of move that outside of it. So it's like a pathway back. Is that your experience? And then you realize, oh, this isn't the only thing. And so now it's like re-embracing its part in the conversation? Mm -hmm. Or do you feel like it was never there to begin with? Well, it depends. So, So I'll say a couple of things. One, I think healing, as with a lot of things in life, healing trauma... Um, it takes a village and there is no silver bullet. So we think, oh gosh, well, if I just get a therapist, I'm going to be okay. Oh, I've got, I I went to therapy. I'm okay. Or if I just get on this, if I just take this pill and it distances me enough from the symptomology that's resulting from my trauma, then I'm going to be okay. And so we look for these kind of silver bullets. And I think spirituality can also serve as a proxy for that silver bullet thinking as well. So somebody goes, well, if I just pray enough or, uh, so it depends on what tradition you're from, right? I think is silver bullet thinking externalizes the healing journey, which, which must be primarily an internal work, right? Not an external work. I cannot outsource my healing journey to a doctor or a therapist or a pastor or spiritual practitioner. And so those those approaches often fail for that for that reason. Now, I grew up in uh, an evangelical, and so in evangelicalism, uh, because this 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 conversation began primarily as a psychological conversation, and because it also had this scientific component with with medicine, spirituality oftentimes sort of self segregated. It said we can't be in conversation with psychology because we don't trust it or we we see it as a threat. We can't be in conversation with science because we don't trust it. We see it as a threat to spirituality. So I think in some ways, um, a lot of these spiritual movements and communities had to evolve and mature to the point that they could move beyond their threatening feelings about these other disciplines and begin to see them as conversation partners. So many of us were, when we began our healing journeys, were given a false choice. We were told we can either take the spiritual route or we can take the quote-unquote secular route, right, which included psychology and medicine. And when we had those conversations with our pastors, we couldn't, for example, I'm a, I'm a gay man, you couldn't, like, pray your gay away. You couldn't pray your trauma away. You 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 did all the—I del- have a very good friend who also has gone through the Living Centered Program who did—who had chronic pain disorders. I've struggled with chronic pain disorders. And, you know, you did the deliverance. You had the prophet or the apostle pray over you. And they did it again and again and again. And yet you still had chronic fatigue. And you still had chronic pain. And, and you still had undiagnosable medical conditions that, that you couldn't wrap your head around. And so it was oftentimes the failure of spirituality that led us back to a, conver- a broader conversation in the quote-unquote secular sphere. But what I think we had to realize is, is that these things were a false choice. And, and even though spirituality could not serve us in isolation, it could serve us in conversation. And so we had to invite spirituality back to the table. The, the other thing that I think is really difficult for this is that spirituality often was a perpetrator of the yeah, trauma. Yeah. So Just we didn't trust that. it. You know, it was like it caused the problem. We had the religious trauma, so why would I go back to religion? Why would I seek religion out as as a, a part of the solution? Uh, we didn't yeah. trust it. I hear so much of what you're saying is sort of this, like, very, from the institution, right, of a faith-based space or the church, this reductive thinking that's really fear-based. Like, we don't understand that sphere, that... Um, that other circle, right? Like we don't understand the thinking. It is scary. We can maybe poke at it and run away. And what that I think unfortunately is done for many years to many people who are suffering from chronic pain or mental illness or deep, deep trauma, deep, deep wounds has sort of gaslit them essentially. Mm-hmm. And just sort of mm-hmm. like, let's just you, I'm so sorry. It's time to press forward, move on. We'll pray for you. And like, kind of like push someone into the corner, which to your point that heaps trauma on trauma on trauma on yeah. trauma and yeah. here we are <laughs> and then we right. have so, covid right so 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 you're you're an lgbtq person and you go to the church for healing and you find homophobia or you're a sexual abuse survivor and you run to the church and you find purity culture or you're a woman who has experienced 
um, sexism or misogyny and you you run to the church or you're a person of color and you go to the church, right? So there, there's, you, you, there are all of these experiences where people have gone to the church for healing and they've either found um, the source of their trauma or they found a, something that compounds their trauma. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that while, while spirituality excused itself from the conversation because of fear and, and lack of trust, also many of us have compartmentalized spirituality for the same reason because we had a lack of trust uh, about its ability to help us as well. And I think for me, it was a long journey of beginning to realize what it looked like with new boundaries and with safer practitioners and with more helpful and compassionate and capacious religious ideologies that I could invite spirituality back to the table. And then rather than compounding my trauma, it accelerated my healing but it had to be in conversation. Conversation partners provide accountability, right? When you say something that medicine knows is not true or psychology knows is not true because it is born witness to the untruthfulness of those claims, it holds spirituality accountable. And when science devolves toward naturalism, for example, right, that it can all be that there's some physical thing that will make it all go away, spirituality can hold it accountable as well for that kind of rigid naturalism. And so I think having um, a, a plethora of tools available that are addressing mind, body, and spirit, right, the, the whole self, to have a holistic conversation, I think, is the only true path to healing, or it has been for me. I can only speak from my experience. It has proven to be so for me. I I'm wondering, I realize that we're using the word spirituality a lot, and I find myself kind of asking the question around, you know, like, there's like religious systems, and then there's like God, higher power, whatever you use. And is spirituality, as you're speaking about it, your relationship with God, higher power, or is it also the practices of the religious systems. Yeah. Well, I think of religion as a container for spirituality. And there are good there there's a spectrum of 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 so some containers are are better than others, right? There are ways that we package spirituality that have proven to be really toxic and broken, and we have seen over time we have observed that they because of the way that the system has been arranged or rigged it can only do more harm than good. And so, you know, on the, on, the, on the really terrible end of that spectrum is like some of the independent fundamentalist movements that are, have embedded misogyny, racism, homophobia, etc. But there are more capacious expressions of it as well. No, they're not, that doesn't make them perfect, but there are more capacious expressions of religion as well. I think that whenever you institutionalize spirituality, you naturally create a number of risks and liabilities, and you just need to be wide-eyed about those. So for me, you're right, spirituality is ultimately about uh, my connection with whatever you want to call it, right? Paul Tillich talked about the ground of our being, the ineffable, the numinous, the mystery, source, universe, God, Jesus, for me, I'm a Christian, right? So I, I, that's, that's, that, that's the language I use. But the ways in which we connect our true selves to the capital T truth, reality, the thing that's beyond all of us, or even if you just, you know, I have people who say to me, well, I don't believe in God. And I say, do you believe in love? Because God is love and love is a mystery, and if you believe that there's a force in the world that is beyond our understanding or ex- explanation that is good and for us, and you call that thing love, then in some ways we're getting at a, a kind of a same thing. And so connecting to that thing and being intentional about connecting to that thing and inviting that thing that is for us and beyond us into this conversation is helpful. But I do think the thing that has also accelerated it for me is connecting to the wisdom traditions that have studied and understood 
uh, spirituality over the centuries. So, you know, my spiritual director is, is Jesuit. I'm not, I'm not Jesuit. I'm not, I'm not even Catholic. But Ignatian spirituality, for me, that's been a container that's been really helpful to me. And I'm sure there are people who could tell you all of the risks and liabilities that are inherent in Ignatian or Jesuit spirituality. But the way that I've made use of those tools has been really helpful to me. Evangelicalism, which I was raised in, it's not a container that I've found to be really helpful. I know a lot of people who have said it, it's a container that hasn't been helpful to them in their journey, but that doesn't mean that to acknowledge the inefficiencies or the harms that are inherent in a particular container, the overreaction is to write off spirituality itself. And I think that's, an, that's a mistake. Hey friends, Hannah here. I am jumping into these conversations around Living Centered and spirituality to talk to you about our Living Centered program. There are tons of reasons why the Living Centered program might be a good fit for you. You may be feeling stuck, you may be feeling burnt out, you may be feeling anxious or depressed, and you also just may be looking for some new direction in life. You may be thinking that there must be more and you're wanting to tap into your total potential. No matter your reasoning, we see all sorts of people attend the Living Centered program and experience the life change that happens there and come out the other side of it a more fuller version of themselves. All of our programs at OnSite really focus on your holistic healing. We know that mental health is just a piece of the equation. There's your physical health, there's your relational health, there's your spiritual health. And so that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. We at OnSite are faith inclusive, meaning we invite and celebrate all different belief systems. Whether you grew up in a faith tradition, you belong to one now, or you don't have one at all, the Living Centered program gives an opportunity to reassess, reevaluate, and reconnect to your understanding of faith, belief, and a higher power. I personally did a Living Centered program a couple years ago, and I came from a background where belief and faith was a big part of my upbringing. But as I got older, that part of my life no longer felt safe, inclusive, and life-giving. Instead, I was carrying around a lot of spiritual wounding. I had grown to kind of let that settle. I had found stability and just kind of let that part be diminished in my life. And so I went to the Living Centered program, not really thinking I would be entering into any sort of engagement with that side of my life. But what the Living Centered program did for me is it offered me a space to just explore, to reconnect and reclaim the parts that still felt healthy and helpful in my life, and to also say goodbye to the pieces that were no longer serving me, to the beliefs that no longer had a place in my life. It allowed me to heal some wounds I had from my spiritual past and also find hope in how I want to build a future. And my story is not unique. I've had the pleasure of talking to hundreds of people who have gone through this program. And no matter their faith or spiritual identity, they found that in the Living Centered program, they were allowed to be fully themselves and explore all parts of themselves and feel connected to something bigger than themselves, whether that's to a higher power, whether that's to nature, or whether that's to people. If you are looking to reclaim parts of yourself that maybe you feel like are lost, or maybe you're looking to heal wounds that are still weighing down your life, or maybe you're looking to explore a new spiritual side of you, the Living Center program could be a great fit for you. My hope is that anyone going through this program leaves emboldened and empowered in the direction they want to be headed. If you want to learn more about how the Living Centered program can support you in your spiritual journey, our team would love to connect with you on a confidential call to explore your options. You can find out more in the show notes, or you can connect with our team by calling 800-341-7432. I love thinking about the way you're describing accountability as sort of this system of checks and balances that you've put in place for yourself. And, and you're really, when we're talking about inviting other seats at the table, right? Like these third parties, first party, whatever, it doesn't matter how many people are at the table, but these people, these practitioners, whomever get to bear witness to what's happening in the room. And I love this notion of 
pulling yourself even out of this binary thinking where you've got you've got just medicine and psychology or you've got just spirituality and medicine whatever it is i think welcoming additional voices and really diversifying that conversation i think in your life and like sort of if this feels fair to make the assessment that you've kind of built your own team for your sustainability for your health and obviously there's some there's some beauty and privilege there that you kind of have access to some of these people, but I, I would love to hear what spiritual direction has looked like for you. And if that is something that you believe to be accessible to kind of all people, even if they don't have, I don't know kind of what the barrier of entry is there, but can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the kind of spirituality that I was given growing up said, you cannot trust your experience. That's a really, that can open the door to a lot of trauma and it can close the door to a lot of healing. Our experience is a powerful, trustworthy way of knowing and being in the world. And so, for example, like when, when I have alarm bells going off, when I'm around someone, I should listen to that. You know, it's not a, it's not a logic formula. It's not hard evidence. It's, a, it's an experience. It's a, it's a feeling. And yet those, you should, you should listen to that. You know, there is wisdom there's wisdom in our experience. There's wisdom in our bodies. And so rather than trusting some sort of esoteric, amorphous, objective truth or some interpretation of a text that was given to you by someone else and saying that that is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and any knowledge that we receive outside of that should be dismissed, I've learned that listening to my experience is deeply spiritual. And so what Jesuit spirituality does for me is it allows me to sit across from someone and say, like, how are you experiencing God right now? And you're, you're able to begin to notice that God, God speaks to us, God comes to us in our experience, that God, um, God becomes known God becomes flesh in our everyday experience. Jesus said this, right? If you give someone a cup of cold water, if you clothe the naked, if you, if you're, you, these are real people in the real world, Jesus says, you have encountered me. And they're like, wait, Lord, where have we seen you? I don't understand. Even these people didn't, didn't understand that spirituality and, and human experience were interconnected, inter, intertwined, inextricably a part of each other. And so for me to begin to trust my experience of God, then, for example, you know, recently I was, I was experiencing um, a lot of anxiety and depression. And I was dealing with that in therapy. I had to go back on um, some, some medication after having been off some medication for a while because it was acute and it was overwhelming and I needed to kind of clear the fog. You know, if, you're, if you take antidepressants, you know what that feels like, right? It doesn't, it's making me who I am again so that I can see clearly to do the work, the healing work. But it was, by, it was in spit, sitting with my, my spiritual director that I began to kind of deconstruct my experience of anxiety and depression to the core messages, the stories that I was telling that were at the heart of that. And then I was able to compare that with my experience of God and realize God was, God was speaking love and okayness into my life. And I could invite God into that moment um, through my experience, a now five, six, seven years long experience with this spiritual director where we have identified what the voice of God sounds like. And when you, when the voice of God always brings peace, love, kindness, compassion, that's, that's the voice of God. And, you know, I think whereas Ignatian spirituality would say, would use a kind of supernatural language, you know, maybe the evil spirit whatever you want to call it. You could just call it the stories we tell ourselves that were given to us by people who didn't care for us well at its best. Spirituality can provide a counter-narrative that can help to dismantle some of the stories that are lodged within us that are pro producing these kinds of symptomologies. And so it was through spirituality 
in conversation with these other tools that I was able to, more quickly than I had in the past, move beyond this crisis moment and get back to the work of healing. Mm, It's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Mm. I'm thinking about, Jonathan, my experience of you right now in this moment is you have a really beautiful language for trauma, really beautiful language for moving through the healing journey. I know you've done some research on kind of how trauma can occur in some of the spiritual environments that we've been alluding to. Can you kind of unpack, maybe high level, give us some of the some of the insights, hot takes from your deep dive into that space? Yeah. So I think the first step, look, if there are people who who want to invite spirituality to the table, I think that the first step is healing your religious or spiritual trauma. That's mm. that's number one right? You can't have a conversation with something or someone you don't trust. And, yeah. uh, and so there's a, there, there's a conversation before the conversation that needs to be had. Mm-hmm. And that can be a multi-year yeah. journey. The level set can yeah. take time. Where, where, does, where does that happen? Like I know for me, when I went through my living centered experience, I think that was like the beginning of some of it, mm-hmm. of like, even that being a therapeutic experience in an environment that was is spiritually open, you know, that I still had like an interaction that I needed to have with my higher power to start <laughs> clearing out some of the gunk and understanding his voice versus the voice that I'd grown up with in a church. And so is that a therapeutic process or has it been in your experience or is it a spiritual direction process or maybe both or everything? It's for sure been a therapeutic process, but I would say, you know, talk to any therapist out there and they'll tell you that the first step in healing trauma is establishing safety. So the very first thing you have to do is remove yourself from the toxic environment that's causing the pain. So that's a super hard step. But if you're just like going to therapy, but you keep showing up at this place and among these people who are harming you, you're you're never going to unwind the clock, right? You're just going to keep, it's just, you're just going to keep re-traumatizing yourself. Dog paddling. And the very first thing I would say is you have to establish safety. You have to remove yourself from the thing that's causing the harm, the the thing that is actually causing that trauma. That's going to give you a little bit of space so that you can observe the thing that you were participating in. When you're a participant, it's like a swarm of bees all around you, right? So you have to like back off to ascend the mountain so you can kind of look back down and observe the thing and understand the thing that was causing you harm. I think that therapy for me has been a really important tool to help me to observe that thing and see what was going on there what kind of harm was being done and what would it look like to begin to acknowledge the harm that was done and to unwind it. Look, I I did a lot of talk therapy for years and years and years, and that was beneficial to a point. I used to think talk therapy was like, you know, the second coming of the Savior or something. Uh, Now what I realize is, is it is a really helpful first step. But for many of us, particularly if you have experienced really deep trauma. I'm, I'm a, a survivor of sexual abuse, physical abuse. I'm a person who comes from a marginalized community and grew up in a fundamentalist church, so I have a lot of religious and spiritual abuse. Those were really, really deep problems, and it required the help of a professional, not just somebody saying, how does that make you feel, but somebody engaging in more evolved and aggressive modalities to get to the root cause of that. I think that another thing that was helpful to me was healing in community. You know, that that's something that onsite I think is it really does well is it's trauma, another principle of, of healing trauma is is that the pain has to be witnessed. Uh, there's a phrase in psychology, an empathic witness. A lot of childhood trauma is so deeply impactful because there's nobody there, there's nobody around to say, I see what's happening to you and what's happening to you is wrong. I have witnessed it and I've expressed empathy for it. And so it is is in these communal settings, when we're doing the healing work in these communal settings with a professional, that we can experience the power 
of the empathic witness. And so somebody else participating in your healing journey to validate your experience and say, I see what happened to you. And oh my gosh, that was, that was terrible. That was horrible. So you've established safety. You're now encountering. You're able to observe the harm that was done to you. You have invited in people who are also safe to be stand-ins and empathic witnesses for you. Those are the kinds of things that will help you to begin to heal spiritual and religious trauma that has to be done before you can ever engage spirituality as a conversation partner. And I would say that then, then you go, okay, well, now I've done those things, right? I, be, I, I really feel like I've done a lot of that, that work of, of, of healing spiritual and religious trauma. You know, what do I do now? I think one of the other helpful things is, is beginning to engage healthier expressions of spirituality because that, that will help your brain develop nuance where you realize that this was not the thing. This was a malformation of the thing. This was a toxic kind of that thing. And so, you know, you, you grow up thinking, even, I grew up in evangelicalism. I grew up Southern Baptist. So I thought Southern Baptist, what being, Southern Baptist is evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is Protestantism. Protestantism is Christianity. Christianity is religion. So you begin to, and, and religion is spirituality. That's a lot of steps. So a lot of people who have a bad experience in evangelicalism write off spirituality without realizing that this is a kind of a thing, which 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 can be a good thing. And so I think it's really, really helpful to engage more life-giving, more loving, more inclusive expressions of that bigger thing so that you can begin to develop the nuance in your brain that says, oh, this is just a really bad expression of that thing. Yeah. One of the questions I have is, like, how do you find those? I mean, I think for a lot of people, they just know what they know. And so that's a bit of a barrier. And then I know in my own personal experience, there was something about my past experiences that worked for me, almost like a dysfunctional relationship. And so I, I noticed as I found new expressions, I sort of missed some of the elements of the old expressions. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder, you know, if that keeps people sort of bound to not finding a new way of practicing spirituality. Yeah, I totally, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying because, you know, it's a, a lot of people who, for example, I can only speak from my experience, leave evangelicalism and become Episcopalians. And they miss the, they miss the emotional high of the worship experience. There, there are things that evangelicals are really good at. I was talking to a friend of mine recently in New York who's a former evangelical as well. And he said, you know, and he's now at an Episcopal church. And he says, you know, evangelicals, I never realized how good they were at hospitality. Now, they weren't, they weren't welcoming everybody, but they were sitting, they were having conversations about from the moment somebody steps onto our property, how do we make them feel welcome? And, and, and that, in isolation, right, dislodged yeah. from the whole system, is a really yeah, good yeah, thing. Yeah. And so you go mm -hmm. into another tradition that doesn't have that practice, but they're good at other things, Right? Maybe mm -hmm. they're good at liturgy or they're good at inclusion or they're good at social justice, but they're not good at that thing and you can miss it. And so what I say is, is there, there are oftentimes there has to be a paradigm shift where mm -hmm. um, we grew up thinking or I grew up thinking that the thing I had was the perfect expression of the thing. Mm -hmm. And the myth of that is that there is a perfect expression of the thing. And it's the framework, it's the premise that you were given. The premise itself is broken. That yeah. there is no perfect expression of spirituality. There are a lot of imperfect expressions that each have their own downsides. And you yeah. have to choose the one. You get to choose the one that has the downsides you can live with. So, yeah, okay, I, now I have to show up at a place that only has 15 people on a Sunday and it doesn't have the energy of a packed room with smoke machines. That's, that's okay, right? I can acknowledge that and accept that, that it doesn't have that jolt of energy. And what I actually can realize over time is that's good for me. 
that spirituality sometimes can be like eating breakfast. Yeah. It's it's a rhythm. It's regular. It's it, it yeah. isn't spectacular. There are not a lot of highs and lows. You're doing the same mm. thing over and over, and it's also good yeah. for you. Mm. Speaking of those rhythms and liturgies as an idea, that pattern way of of moving through the world, I think um, an example of an evangelical person sort of. There is a liturgy that they have been involved with. They wouldn't use that word, but their pattern of sort of you use the smoke machine, fill in the blank, whatever, very loud, kind of more emotive expression of worship. Doing the same thing every week writes a neural pathway. And I really think that it takes it can take a long time for people to rewrite those. And you're describing very beautifully the process of beginning to, to write new ones. And I'm curious about in your own story. What was that moment where you you really said, like, this is this is not serving me well. Like, I've got to rewrite the story here. I've got to try a new liturgy. I've got to try a new. And, and also, like, the moment where you you could have said, I, I am throwing out the entire container. Like, the whole container. You know, I think that so often people do throw out the entire thing because their experience has been so negative or so harmful or so traumatic or fill in the blank. And they really do miss something that is adjacent to so good, so true. So yeah, so many questions there, but well, I would love know, to hear your take on that. I, I was given a wonderful, terrible gift of being outed. So the universe pushed me out of the nest uh, in a sense. In 2012, I was on staff at an evangelical megachurch in Georgia, and then I was outed. And it quickly became apparent to me that I had a choice. I could either embrace who I deep down really knew that I was and was coming very quickly. It was coming to this realization that it absolutely was who I was or a part of who I was, an intractable part of who I was. Or I could stay in my tradition and make peace with it and just quarantine that that part of myself, reject that part of myself, deny that part of myself. So I had witnessed almost, well, at this point, 30 years of what denying and quarantining that part of myself looked like. And it looked like a lot of pain. It looked like a lot of distress. It looked like a lot of depression. It looked like a lot of loneliness and isolation. To, to borrow from Jesus, you know, it had a, there was a lot of bad fruit. And I had 30 years of data that said that this root— the root of self-denial would bear bad fruit. And it wasn't only my experience, because the more I looked around me and started to, to see other people's experience, or you look at the data, uh, people, gay people who deny their own experience, particularly on religious grounds, have a higher level of depression, a higher level of anxiety, a higher uh, potential rate of suicide, rate of potential suicide, and they're at risk of all kinds of things. So it was clear to me that that health for me meant if I had to choose, I couldn't choose that thing. And so I moved and I went to, I moved to New York City and I went into a period of what I call like church detox. I had to just fast from church for my own health and my own sanity. So for a while, I wasn't involved in, in anything. I didn't go to church. I didn't trust church. I just needed a minute to catch my breath. And instead, I was doing the work of understanding myself so that whenever I re-engaged the church, if I ever did, I didn't know if I would at that time. If I did re-engage the church or if I did re-engage spirituality, I could bring my whole self to, to spirituality rather than a part of myself. And it was, you know, not long after moving here that as I moved through some of the, that, that healing process, I was able to kind of dip my toe back in the water and I didn't do it. I didn't just start showing up and teaching. I didn't start showing up and serving. It was like I was just able initially to kind of slip into a place and sit in the back row and listen, slip into another place in the back row and listen. And and these were these churches were very different than the ones I grew up in. I couldn't just go back to to what I had come from. I had to go forward to a new kind of thing. And you have to process that loss because, you know, spirituality is about letting go oftentimes. It's about moving beyond what you used to be. It's about new creations, 
Christianity certainly had taught me this, but now I was realizing what it meant to actually live this out in a new way. And so, um, you know, I think for, for many, many people, whether they're pushed out the way I was pushed out or they just kind of over time come to a realization that they've been caught up in a toxic system, the first step oftentimes is, is fasting from it, is, is purging all of that from your life for a time and then, and then determining when and how it's safe to re-enter spirituality. That's so insightful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Jonathan. and I'll, I'll tell That's... you too, because because spirituality is not monolithic. We've we've talked a lot about that, but I'll I'll kind of break it down into uh, some categories. You've got spiritual communities. You've got spiritual practices, which can be done in communities or can be done yourself. And then you have spiritual, you, you might call it spiritual folklore. Some people will kind of bristle to that, but you, you're the scriptures, the, the language, the stories, the, the, the stories and language that spirituality can give you. And, and different traditions have their own language and stories. And so you can begin to engage in other ways. Like you may, you may have to withdraw from spiritual community for a while. But that doesn't mean that you, you, you have to also withdraw from spiritual practice. That doesn't mean that you also have to withdraw from the stories and language of spirituality. And so I think teasing out what spirituality is, it, it gives you, it, it, it begins to disabuse you of this myth, this kind of all or nothing mythology about spirituality or religion, that actually this is a many faceted thing. And once we can tease that out, we can isolate where the harm has come to us. So you may need to fast from a part of or a kind of or an expression of or a segment of spirituality while, while allowing yourself to engage in the, in the life-giving forms of the other things, not cutting yourself off from uh, meditation or prayer practices or silence and solitude or contemplative practices you know, there are all of these, or just simply breath work. It, it, breath work, I mean, is there, is there a more fundamental, foundational, elementary spiritual practice than that? Non-threatening, by the way. It's inherently non-threatening. Anybody can do. You say, I, can't, I cannot deal with, with spirituality. I have to get rid of spirituality. Can you breathe? Can you just be with your own breath? Because if you can do that, then you can have a spiritual practice. Then spirituality can be a part of your healing journey. And it, it's not a Christian practice, uh, although it can be. It's, it's not a religious practice, although it can be. But it's, it is the most basic thing that you can do to simply be with your breath. Can you be in the present moment? You know, Richard Rohr says, spirituality, all spiritual traditions, Richard Rohr has said, maybe particularly Buddhism, but certainly streams of Christianity have, have been about one thing at their base, which is being present to the present moment. Because God is in the present moment. God is capital P, Presence. And the problem is, is not that God is not, is not with us. God is always with us. We are always in the presence of God. There is nowhere else we can be. We cannot not be in God's presence. But as Rohr says, the question is, is can we be present to the presence? Because for so many of us, and our trauma has taught us this, we're either twisted up in the past twisted up in the, in the regret and the guilt of what has happened to us previous to this moment, or it has, it has sparked in us a fear, an anxiety, an apprehension so that we are dislodged from the present moment and we're stuck in the worries of the future and we're not present to the presence. Breath work, basic spirituality, Basic spiritual tools that, are, that will be shared in some form or expression in almost every spiritual tradition 
can be powerfully powerful accelerants in the healing journey. They are inherently non-threatening. And so what I would say is, is there are ways that even the people who have been most traumatized uh, by spirituality or, or by religious institutions, systems, and leaders, there are basic forms of spirituality that every single person can practice. These things can lead to great, ever greater healing in your own mm. trauma healing journey. I'm thinking about something else as elemental as breath being food, eating, like nourishing our bodies and thinking about in most spiritual traditions, the the act of sharing a meal with other people in the context of community is really, really undergirds what spirituality means for so many. And I know that community and shared meals is a huge part of your, your life today and your healing journey. And I'm wondering because you were harmed by community, maybe a community member or a community in general, when did you feel safe to re-engage in relationship with people in a spiritual community? What did that look like? Like beginning to trust, okay, I can actually enter this space with my, as my full self, bringing everything that I am, the whole of me, to the table. What did that look like for you? Yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a moment like having a birthday where you could point and say, that's when it happened. It was more like waking up right? It kind of stirred and happened over time until it was, it was fully realized. So for me, you know, I went through this period of detox. I started to dip my toe back in the water. But even then, when I was engaging in spiritual community, I wasn't, I didn't feel um, safe enough to offer my whole self. I was still, I was still operating with something of a shell or a facade and it and i think you know trust is not just granted it's earned and that's particularly true in spiritual communities because spiritual communities ask so much of you they ask for your full and authentic self they ask for vulnerability which is which always includes a risk of pain or harm and so that happened over time i would say there there're kind of some moments or milestones for me you know i live now on an episcopal seminary campus and the church where I attend, where I'm an elder, meets in the chapel at the center of the campus. My pastor, uh, my worship pastor, it lives with his family in the wall, uh, on the other side of the wall that's in front of me right now. Uh, my pastor is in the apartment below him. You know, there's many church members who live on the campus here and live in the neighborhood here and live on the island of Manhattan. And so I have kind of, I couldn't have moved from Atlanta to here, that would not have worked for me. There was a journey I had to take to get back to this place. And by the way, I don't think everybody has to end up back in this place. That was just my journey. It may not look that way for you. In fact, for most people, it will not look that way for you. Uh, I, have a, I have a really unique situation, but there is something healing for me about, you know, we have a happy hour every Friday and we bring, each person brings whatever they have, whatever they can. And, um, you know, we meet sometimes if it's warm, we meet on the lawn and we, we have wine and we have drinks and food and conversation and you can bring your full self and there's no judgment. And to be in this space, to be in a literal sacred space, with people who are also um, deeply spiritual people and to, to, to engage in a practice of sharing a meal and bringing my full self to that space, that's healing. That's, that is at least as healing as taking Lexapro, Wellbutrin, Buspar. It's at least as healing as, those th as that thing. And by the way, for me, taking Lexapro for many, for many, many years uh, was a spiritual practice as well. It wasn't a wafer, but it might as well have been because it allowed me to say, thank you, God, that I live in an era where we have the knowledge and the resources to provide these kinds of healing tools to people like me. And so I see spirituality, <laughs> I see spirituality in all of these things. I love it. I really appreciate that. Yeah. 
I think back to the beginning of our conversation and you were talking about just sort of the challenges of the last two years and the state of the world and sort of all these things that feel like they're culminating. And I was reminded as you were talking that I think, you know, like during COVID and even sort of now I'll find myself like waiting for the world to get back to like normal and things to feel easier again. And the, the truth of the matter is the world is going to be what the world's going to be. And that we have to find the practices that allow us to stay present. Like you were talking about and grounded and resilient enough to move through it Mm -hmm. and not be so reactive Mm -hmm. to it maybe. And so I think that this conversation has been so helpful because it's reminded me that there are just so many tools in the tool Mm -hmm. belt and that it's not a, there's not one way to get healing that there's just all these practices that can help Mm -hmm. us Mm -hmm. survive and thrive. Yeah. I mean, I've even, I've even thought a lot about, you know, I think for many people, the Bible was weaponized against them. And so, you know, there's this image in the scripture about, and it's, it's in a prophecy about beating swords into plowshares. And that's been a kind of spiritual practice for me, is taking some of these things that have harmed me and that because they've been weaponized and reworking them, right? And engaging them in, in life-giving ways and expressions and forms. And the Bible has been one of those, those things for me. I can tell you, when you begin to read the Bible through the lens of trauma, it will mean something different to you. Suddenly, new interpretations, new understandings, because what is the Bible about if it's not about trauma? New, new understandings and interpretations will spring off the page, and you'll suddenly receive a kind of wisdom you didn't know existed there. Um, but it, it does require taking this thing, which was given to us only with moralized interpretations, right? You're either good or bad, and God's going to be good or bad to you based on how good or bad you are. When we, when we can release those moralized, broken, often shame-inducing interpretations— and read the Bible in a more human way, which is to say to read it through a trauma-informed lens, I think even that can come back to life. At least it has for me. Yeah. Is there a verse or a scripture that you hold on to today that means something totally different to you than when you first read it? Yes, I, I love, I look at stories, and in particular, the Old Testament stories, because they're so helpful in this regard, although the New Testament has great stories. So I'll give you one really good one, because it's, it gives, it's in sharp relief, um, the story of Noah. If you're not familiar with the story, this is the way the story was told in my tradition, that a really long time ago, people were really, really bad. And because God is bad to people who are bad, God decided to kill everyone on earth. That's, that sort of is the setup. So you can already see how, how, how wonderful this story is. And the implication of that story is, is that God loves us more or less based on how we behave, that God will interact with us better or worse based on how we behave, that God is willing to do the most horrible things to people who are implicated in bad things. We assume there were women and children who died. However, if you read this story, the story continues, and there's a lot more to it. Noah, for example, steps off the boat and offers a guilt offering, not not an offering of thanksgiving, um, a guilt offering. There's a sacrifice of animals, which says... Noah feels guilty about whatever has happened. There is a thing we know about called survivor's guilt, by the way, that when, when everything else when everything else goes away and you're the last one standing, there is a psychological phenomenon where we can't process that any other way except guilt. So I can read Noah now as a story. It, it, it answers the question or it begins to sort of wrestle with the question of what happens when your whole world is washed away? And what happens when God is implicated in the loss of your whole world? How do you make sense of that? 
Noah actually is not a story about a hero. Noah is a cautionary tale. It's a person who exits an experience in which in which his whole world is washed away, an experience in which God is implicated in the very pain that has now become lodged in Noah's being, in the kind of pain that has produced in him an inescapable guilt, a guilt that he can't seem to get off of him. And you realize what happens after the guilt. What's the first thing that he does? He plants a vineyard and he drinks himself into a stupor. We know a lot about coping mechanisms. And Noah, Noah, I think, is the patron saint of coping mechanisms. He cannot deal with his trauma. He cannot deal with his guilt. He cannot make sense of a world that has been totally washed away of the full catastrophe of his own existence, and he tries to numb it out. And, and the end, the real end of the story, none of this ever gets told in the moralized interpretations, is Noah has this really weird encounter with Noah's sons. But whatever happens in that encounter, we realize that there's a curse that transmits itself for generations. Of course, we know a lot about generational trauma. So for me, Noah is a cautionary tale of what happens when your whole world is washed away, when God is implicated in the pain that you've endured, when you feel an inescapable guilt for something that was not your fault, when you try to numb out that pain rather than process it, and when you transmit it then to your loved ones rather than stopping the cycle of pain with you. And suddenly that story makes a lot of sense. And it begins to speak about human realities that you have encountered, that I have encountered. It begins to warn us against the unhealthy habits that will not lead to our own flourishing. It begins to point us to a better way. It points us, I think, to the good news of what healing can look like through offering us really the sad tale of somebody who did it the wrong way. And um, that's a beautiful story. That's a story. That's that's a story. I don't know if it's. I don't know if that story is appropriate for children, but it sure <laughs> would do a lot of us adults good if we told <laughs> yeah. it. If we told it in a more full and complete way. Yes. And and so that's one example I think of a story that you can begin to understand through a new lens. That's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And I totally want like story hour with Jonathan. I want Reading Rainbow. You are LeVar Burton. I want it. Please I will be it. your LeVar Burton. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, as we wrap these conversations, we typically ask our guests, what's a centering practice that's bringing you home to yourself? You've shared a lot about different practices with us today, and I'm so grateful for all of your insight. Is there one that is essential that you maybe begin or end your day with that is really kind of keeping you alive these days? Oh, man, that I, that I begin or end my day, my day with. I will tell you one for me, and it's not, it's not going to be, uh, it, it, assuming that everybody out here is doing breathing practices, mindfulness meditation, or returning to the present moment, prayer, all the basic ones. One of them that's, that, is a, that is part and parcel of Ignatian spirituality, which we've talked to, is the examine which is an end-of-the-day um, meditation practice where you review the events of your day and you begin to observe where God showed up in those events. You know, we've, we've evolved in such a way that we've developed this phenomenon, negativity bias, which means, our, which means the negative things that happen to us are sticky, they, they stick with us. They're front of mind. We, we can more easily recall negative information in the stories that we live than positive information, which means if we want to elevate those positive sides, those divine encounters, we have to ritualize them. We have to I intentionally bring them to mind so that they also become sticky and so for me, the examine is a way to remind myself that in the midst of all of the negativity which is coming at me every single day, love is also there. Love is also, almighty love is also intersecting my life every single day. So that if tomorrow, if I have a panic attack, if the bottom falls out, if I, if I re-encounter uh, an old wound that I thought I had healed at a new level and it starts bleeding again, I am reminded that almighty love is still there with me, that I haven't been left or forsaken. And there's a kind of comfort in that. 
that I remember that there is always an empathic witness that is looking at my pain, even new, new pain and old, and saying, I see that, and that's not right. That's, that's really, really bad. I'm sorry. And uh, I think that's what allows us to, to stay in healing as a flow and a process, not as an event. Mm. And to choose to locate and remember that, I think, is an act of resistance, especially in the middle of the world you just described. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for being with us. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.